0: Welcome, 90% Mental, I'm your host Grant Parr and thank you for joining us for our 66th episode. As a mental performance coach, I have the honor to work with athletes to enhance their mental game and give them the tools to unlock their full potential. The reason why I created 90% Mental is to bring awareness around mental performance within sport by interviewing athletes and coaches so they can share their stories and perspectives on the mental game. So today I have Danielle Slayton, silver medalist, former professional soccer player, and sports broadcast analyst who's going to talk about her defensive Olympic mindset and her overall journey as an athlete. This interview is going to encompass how Danielle established such a competitive mindset which fueled her defensive play, but how she overcame injuries, got prepared for games, and how she embraced pressure. She's also going to share intimate stories of the road that she took on earning a roster spot on the national team and what it felt like winning the silver medal. What I love about her defensive mindset is that every time she stepped on the field, the intention was that no one was ever gonna beat her, and if someone did, that only happened once. This type of mindset actually helped her with the transition out of sport. But what's really cool about Danielle's story is that she shares a raw experience of how bumpy it was when she left the game of soccer, but As most things do when you have good intention, there's a great ending to it. So she's got a great story to share from her athletic career into what she's doing now. I can't wait to share this interview and her energy with all of you. So without further ado, let's go talk to Danielle. Hey, Danielle, how are you? I am great, Grant. Thanks for having me. You bet. I am excited to have you on my show Just to to learn a little bit more about your mindset as a soccer player and dive a little bit deeper into your Olympic experiences and talk a little bit more about life after soccer. So I'm I'm really excited to have you on my show. Thanks. Happy to be here. All right. So I want to kick off my show with my favorite question here, and it's about mental toughness. So what does mentally tough mean to you?
1: To me, um, mentally tough, people who are mentally tough have the ability to do the next most important thing, no matter what that is. And that kind of evolved for me as I was a player, because when I first started, you know, I think mentally tough and I think like physically tough fitness, suffering, getting through it. And it was very, very much the most, um, or on the, on the, on the physical side and having to wrap your brain around how to overcome some really hard obstacle. But As I kind of went through my career and even beyond my career, I think of it more as whatever's the most important thing, you have to be able and willing to do it. So sometimes that really might be rest and sometimes that might be having a conversation and sometimes that might be fitness and and taking care of your body in that way. But um, doing the next most important thing, no matter what it is, is to me how I define being mentally tough.
0: I love it. It kind of co- coincides to the win mindset, something that I teach. It's what's important now. So when you can get into that 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 here and now moment and do what's next, you know, again, like you said, that's being mentally tough, and I love it. And knowing, just watching some of your film, uh, the way you play defense, I mean, talk about being mentally tough throughout your career. And I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that. So, um, <laughs> so that's pretty cool. So when you think about your career, your long career. Was there any moment that you can like, share with our, my, my listeners about maybe a moment where you were mentally tough?
1: I mean, I think the the most obvious thing and the first thing that comes to mind is just managing injury and dealing with injury because you're removed from your normal training environment. You're oftentimes not with your team and, you know, soccer is very much a team sport. So you might be in the training room, you might be at physical therapy and you're working really hard, not to get better, but just to kind of get back to where you were. And that can be grinding, uh, especially when, you know, times aren't, aren't, aren't easy and things aren't going as well as you had hoped. And, you know, maybe you have setbacks. Um, so I think about the times when, um, I was dealing with injury, I had a bunch of you know knee surgeries and, um, uh, injury to my right knee and that's ultimately why I stopped playing. And so really having like positive thoughts and having imagery about, what it was going to be like once you got through this setback was kind of how I dealt with it and really relied a lot on my friends, my family, my teammates, because when I wasn't telling myself great things or when I wasn't super positive about it, that's when I would rely on them and lean on them to help me have that vision of what it was going to be like once I got through this difficult time and injury. But yeah, I mean, I think Overcoming injury is something that I think is a really tough thing, and the first thing that my mind goes to when I think of a time in my career where I had to be tough.
0: Well, it's I I agree with you because I you know I had a a fairly long career in football and I had multiple injuries and I had a career-ending injury, so I I can I'm empathetic to that. I think uh, you have to be mentally mentally tough to get through an injury, especially you know creating that confidence within your body again but the fact that you used, you know, support system and imagery, I love that. It's music to my ears. So it's awesome. <laughs> so, motivation, when you think about when you were playing as a soccer player, what was what was your motivation? What motivated you?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think it was different at different times. I mean, when I first first started playing, it was just a recreational soccer's fun 5-year-old. It was It was fun. Like that's, that's what was motivating to me. Um, And I got to be with my friends. And I think when I went through those, you know, teen tween years, it was social. Like I just wanted to hang out with my friends. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be away from my parents and with my girlfriends. And, um, and so that's what was motivating. Um, And, you know, kind of as I got older and a little bit more competitive into that high school college professional, Um, I think my teammates were always really motivating um, because I got to play with some of the best players in the world. And I was fortunate that I was on teams where I was a good player, but I was always around players who were better than me and um, had skills that I didn't have. And so looking at them was really motivating to either try to defend them or learn what they were doing so I could replicate that. And a lot of times it was positive, but I have to say honestly, too, a lot of times it was like a little bit of a fear of failure you're like, I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to work on this. And it was a self-imposed pressure. Um, I'm a competitive person. I am sure that that competitiveness developed being in competitive environments, but I was competitive when I was born. Like my parents tell me we would be playing like Jacks and I would want to win no matter what. So I think that's a little bit, you know, my, my nature. Um, so I would say it's, it's two things. I often look to my teammates. And to being part and contributing to that successful team, and not wanting to let my teammates down, as motivation. But I also had that little fear of failure, and you know, not wanting to mess up and not wanting to to fail. That really drove me to practice, to do that extra run, to do that extra, um, to make sure that I could be the best that I could be.
0: You know, you you bring up a great point about fear, and I, I talk about this all the time with athletes, but because people and I preach about this with fear, you know, we create it. And so if we create it, no one creates it except for us. So we, uh, we have to own it. And, and if you have a relationship with fear and you can use it to motivate you, you can elevate you. That's, that's awesome. And, but there's the other part of fear where it cripples you and, and yeah. you, it paralyzes you. But the fact that you used fear to motivate you is, it's is interesting. I love it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, I had, I had to find that balance and I didn't always get it right. Right. Like there were some times when, you know, I felt that pressure and my cortisol levels were like out the roof (laughs) and that's like not healthy. Right. Right. But I had to find where that line was. And sometimes that fear was, was well-channeled and sometimes I didn't do it well and I had to find a new tool and find a new method. And sometimes I, it was like all great and dandy. I never thought about being fearful. I was just confident and with my teammates and having fun and we went out in and did our thing. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, we're constantly learning skills on the technical side. We're constantly learning, you know, our, our how to get better physically and fitness wise. And I think the same thing goes on the mental side. You're constantly trying to learn what the tools are that are most applicable to that situation that are going to be most helpful to you. The challenge is just that it's different for everybody and it's not as easily measured. So we don't always focus on it or think about it or train it in the way I might train, like hitting a long ball or, you know, shooting or defending or something like that.
0: Right. No, that's a great point. It's a great point. When you think about your mindset as a soccer player, how would you categorize it? And did it change from when you were in college to the national team and then into the professional ranks?
1: Um, I, don't, I don't know 100%, but I, what I can say that I feel like made me um, be a successful athlete and contributed to that was, to me like games and practice were the same and my mindset going into a game and my mindset going into practice was the same. Um, and I treated I, any games that were super high pressure. I mean, national championship game or Olympic game, like to me, it was just another day on the soccer field. Um, and I really worked hard to kind of cultivate that consistency. Um, so I never got too high. I never got too low. I just went on and did my job. Um, and I think that enabled me to train at a high level and it also enabled me to withstand the pressure of maybe a high situation game because yeah, like still same size soccer field, still 22 players on the field. Like I've done this since I was five. It's really not that different other than, you know, all of this other external stuff that might be trying to influence the situation, but the situation's the same. If I just look at it of what's going on on the pitch. So I think that was always kind of my mindset. And I don't know that I knew that consciously, but I just kind of did that and reflecting back on it. And as I evolved and spent more time thinking about the mental side, that's what I came to understand um, and learn about myself. But I think that's part of what made me successful.
0: You talked about your, you know, your job, your role. Um, And I love it that you, you treated practice just like games. I love that. But as your role, and you were many things when you played soccer, but one of your strengths was your defense. And, you know, when you look back at, you know, some of the accolades in 2001, you were Defender of the Year, 2001 NCAA College Cup Defensive MVP, you were Defensive Player of the Year when you played for the Carolina Courage. So in your DNA, there's there's a defender. What fuels that mindset playing at that level being a defender? you will not beat me like you will not beat me that I
1: mean that was that was it and um and you might beat me once but I will figure out and how to manage it how to deal with it and then you won't beat me again like that's really how I felt um especially in like a one versus one situation um that was my mentality was there's no way that you're going to get around me today and on the flip side i was a defender who liked to attack liked to get forward liked to get involved and like i took so much joy out of being a defender and going forward. And that meant really like a forward was going to have to track you or a midfielder was going to have to work all day to chase you, you know, and, and they were going to have to defend you. And that just brought me so much joy. Like I would wait for the moment when I would see a forward or a midfielder across from me, like put their hands on their knees. And I'm like, give me the ball. I want to go again. Like I own you right now. (laughs) And, and that's what I would, I would look for. And I knew that it wouldn't happen in the first five minutes or 10 minutes of the game, but I, I, but I knew come 70th minute, 80th minute, like you were going to break before I would. And mm-hmm. that's when we might have our chance. And I think that's what's cool about soccer is, you know, goals are really hard to score. You don't have, you know, five touchdowns in a game. You often have a 1-0 scoreline or a 2-0 scoreline. And so you're working for 90 minutes to get one chance and one quality chance. And it's a cat and mouse game that you play with uh, the other team, with maybe the person you're going up against, and you have to stick with it for a long time to just get that one chance. And that's what, part of what I think is special about soccer and part of why like being mentally tough and like having that grittiness is huge in this sport because you might just get one chance and you've got to be willing to stick with it over the course of an hour or 90 minutes to get that one chance
0: exactly you know a few things I love it that you bring up the emotion joy I think the word doesn't to me doesn't get brought up enough in the world of sports because I think at the end of the day you know like you said earlier you're playing sport because it's fun and if we can tap into that joy that joyfulness or joyous feeling whether if it is you know playing defense or offense or whatever sport you're playing I think it's important I think to me, joy is like one of the coolest emotions. And if you can actually, yeah. you know, tap into it while you're playing, that, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I do. I mean, I think that's part of why I love soccer. Soccer to me is very much a player's game. We don't have plays unless maybe it's one like set play or something. But the game is very free flowing. So we don't have plays. We don't have timeouts. Like It is a player's game. And you roll the ball out and you got 45 minutes to figure it out coach can give you some tweaks at halftime and then you got 45 minutes to finish it off. And so it allows players to bring that personality and to problem solve and to figure it out on the field. And I hope that, you know, kind of as youth sport evolves, that we don't like kill the joy from the game and kill the personality from the game by overtraining and saying we must do this and we must do that like I think as coaches and as parents it's really important to focus on the fun focus on the joy focus on bringing your personality and what's special about you out and showing that on the field and I think that's was a big part of the national team like our um one of our captains Julie Snowdy, like she would always say like laughter is permitted like we are on the national team but laughter is permitted and that's part of why I think we were successful, because we had this really kind of family-friendly, joyous atmosphere. Would we kick each other? Yes. Would we like fight and claw to the death death on the field sometimes? Yes. (laughs) But we'd walk off of the field, and we'd be laughing. And that was, I think, part of what made us successful and what made us really great on the world stage.
0: You know, it's I want to bring up this story, too, because that's awesome. You know, one of the one of the teams that I work with, uh, Midi High School, and I'm working with Sue Phillips and the the women's basketball team there, and she, a part of her culture is joy, and so, before every practice, all all the girls get together in the key, and they sit. It's it's about ten minutes of them just goofing off, uh, having fun, playing with each other, getting some kind of like rhythm, and they're moving back and forth, and they're just having fun, and I just like when I saw that for the first time, I'm like, how awesome is that, that you get to start off practice with joy and, yeah. and, and, and with each other, you know, and yeah. it's just a, it's cool. And I agree with you. I, I think, man, if, if we can keep joy alive in sports, man, that's, 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 that's key. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, want to get a little bit in your mindset a little bit from a mental performance standpoint, um, what kind of athlete were you as far as your preparation were when you are getting prepared for these these games were you nervous excited were you, you want to be left alone did, were you that person that like listened to music how did you get prepared for your games
1: um so i often listen to music and um like i mentioned before like i mean for me i You know, never wanted to get too high and I never wanted to be too low. I just kind of wanted to be right in the middle and like so I could perform optimally. Like if I was too high and excited, I could like run my energy out in the first 10 minutes, which not good. You got to go for 90 minutes. So um, I would often listen to music, but the kind of music I would listen to would depend on how I was feeling that day. Um, and probably how big the game was. So if it was, you know, national championship final, there is no way I was listening to crazy pump up music because I already had that like kind of nervous energy inside of me. And those were the moments when I might listen to something a little more mellow and just try to get myself to that play place where I was steady and confident and ready to go, but not too hyped or not too low. Um, and there would be times, and and, I mean, I think all professional athletes, probably all athletes in general could, could tell you those times when, you wake up and it's a big game or it's just any game and you're just not feeling it and you're not like into it, or maybe you slept poorly or maybe you didn't have a good pregame up or whatever it is. And those would be the times where I'm like, yep, I need a little something. Like I need to listen to some, some hype music because I'm not there yet and this will help. So um, for me, I would always kind of really, I would try to be really attuned to my body and to how I was feeling that day physically and mentally and kind of adjust accordingly. Um, I always liked to take a shower before um, I played; Like I felt like I wanted to be like clean and focused and ready to go before I got all dirty and messed up. Um, So that was part of my pregame ritual. Um, And then, you know, I again, I don't think that I had anything that was 100 percent consistent. Um, I just knew where I kind of wanted to be when I stepped in between the white lines and then I tried to get there.
0: Besides taking a shower, were there any other routines or rituals that you did?
1: No, that was it, really. I mean, we always kind of had our pregame meal, um, I don't know, maybe four or five hours before a game. And (laughs) I would love to say that that was steady. But, you know, when you're traveling all over the world playing games, like, sometimes you just get what you you get. And it might be peanut butter and jelly because (laughs) that's all that's available, you know, in middle of nowhere China. So... um, so I would say, you know, listening to to music, really um having taking a shower. And then um as I got a little bit more older, I would really target like one or two things I would have in the back of my mind. It was never more than three, um, but it was always at least one. Like this is what I want to do this game. And It could be anything, something I'd been focusing on um, in the game, something that was specifically targeted toward the opponent we were playing, but I would have that um, in the back of my mind. Um, It evolved where – uh, when I first started, I would write it down like on a little piece of paper, um, or a piece of tape or somewhere that I could see it. But then I got to a point where I could just keep it in my head, but I was very, very specific. So I could define success for myself at the end of the game, uh, regardless of what happened on the field or what my teammates did. This is something that was entirely within my control. I knew I could accomplish it or, uh, if I worked hard at it and, and I would have that very specific target in mind heading into a game
0: i l- I love that because I preach this all the time about intention. If we set intention, whether if it's in sport or not in life, we're purposeful, we have a goal, we have something that we're 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 aiming at, and I feel that intention equals mindset. so if we want a mindset in anything we do, we gotta set intention and I love that you've had you know a couple of things before every game that you were focusing on. And I and I do this with all of my athletes that work with me. I think it's really really important that if if you want to condition yourself with anything, you got to see it. And so if it is, you know, a, a mantra a statement or an acronym, you know, you got to put it in your locker room. You got to put it on your bag. You got to put it on your cleats, whatever. And it's funny mm-hmm. cuz a lot of the athletes I work with, I haven't put WIN, the win mindset on their cleats or on their wristbands or headbands or wherever they can see it. And it helps. It helps condition the behavior.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And it helps for me, at least when I first started, it was like that trigger, right? Your mind goes yeah. down this path and, oh, this isn't the path I really want to be going down right now, or this <laughs> right. isn't helpful. And right. how do you trigger, like, how do you remove that thought from your mind? And especially for me, like, when you're in a game, you don't have time to negotiate with yourself, right? Like, you don't have time to figure out how to solve this problem. I had to have like a pre-planned solution in my head that maybe wasn't the perfect solution but given the pressure and the circumstances it was going to it was going to be good enough for that moment and so I would have a pre-planned thought in my head of okay if I'm going down the wrong path if I'm thinking negative thoughts if I made a mistake How do I trigger myself to get back on track? Will it be perfect? Probably not. Will I have to do it five more times? Maybe. But I already knew exactly what I was going to do so I could replace that negative thought Mm. with at least something a little bit more adequate to help trigger me to get me back on track. So I wasn't having to try to figure out how to do that during the game. I already knew it was already set. And, um, and like I said, with like, I wasn't good at it when I first started, but with time and with effort and practice, and I'm talking like, months and years practice, then it was second nature and I knew, oh, negative thought switch. This is what I want to think about. Okay. Now I know I'm back and focused on what I have to do, which is trying to win the game.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, with regards to, to mental performance or mental skills training, how much did you adopt these principles like breathing, visualization, self-talk, meditation? How much was that a part of your game?
1: I would say I wish it was more. I just don't think we knew as much about this or I wasn't as exposed to it at a young age as, you know, as as exists now. So I think that things that I did before, like I knew they were a thing, like I just did them, I did do a lot of visualization, right? So I I would just naturally be like, okay, what does that look like? Or I would see somebody do something and I would try to picture myself doing it. Um, I don't think it was formalized. I don't think I was ever trained to do it. I just somehow would like want to learn from other people's mistakes or learn from other people's successes and try and do it. So I would say visualization was certainly something that I did. Um, goal setting was something I did as a very, very young age. I would write my goals like my my parents gave me a, um, a dry erase marker and I would write them on my mirror in my bathroom when I was a kid. Don't know where that came from. Don't know why I did that. Just I love started it. doing it. I love it. And then I would say we, you know, I started learning a little bit more about, you know, having a mistake ritual or positive self-talk. Um, by the time I got to to college and and professionally, and I started to implement that as part of my game at that point.
0: Awesome. And did you ever have a chance to work with a sports psychologist, especially at the Olympic level or professional level?
1: Yeah, we did with the national team. We had a sports psychologist her name is Colleen Hacker. She's amazing, and I would say. It's interesting. I mean, I would say that two things that we probably spent the most time on with her, I mean, people had different individualized plans or different you know, different things they would be working on with her, but collectively as a whole, I would say we spent a ton of time working on goal setting, right? Like what do you want to accomplish and how are you going to get there and what that plan was and then controlling what you can control and letting go of the rest and really understanding that what you control is probably a lot smaller than you think, or you want. And, and figuring out how to really focus and hone your energy on that. And, you know, letting go of that, which, which you didn't have any control over. So I thought she was great. She was a huge help to, to our team, um, especially with regards to that as there was starting to be more and more attention, on women's soccer in the nineties and two thousands. And, you know, all of a sudden there's media, this, and, you know, winning the 99 world cup and, and just all of this other stuff was going on. And as professional athletes, we had to, to to learn what it meant to be like a professional athlete in a growing media market. And so we having to be able to tune out a lot of that external stuff and really just focus on what we could
0: control and what we needed to do on the field. Yeah, it's huge. You know, last year I had Tiffany Roberts say that, that uh, who you played with, And she actually brought up Colleen and had the same experience. She just had rave reviews on what she did for her and for the team.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think, again, like, I mean, people continue to understand the importance of the mental side of the game. And I think she was one of the early adopters and one of the the pioneers when it came to, especially working with professional women's athletes as, professional opportunities were evolving in in women's sport. She was one of the the first ones to take our team in. She's worked with USA hockey. She's worked with swimmer. Like she's worked with just a number of professional athletes, particularly on the women's side. And I mean, she's touched a lot of lives and made a lot of, a lot of difference.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to your Olympic experiences. And when you think about your Olympic dream, was that always a goal to be on the national team?
1: No, because it didn't exist when I was
0: a kid. Like, <laughs> right, I, I mean, right.
1: I, I grew up watching football. I came from a big track family, and I wanted to be Ronnie Lott and Jackie Joyner-Cursey. Like, that's who I wanted to be when I, I grew up, it. because there was no women's soccer. And especially, I mean, there soccer just in general, even on the men's side, you didn't see European soccer, because I wasn't waking up at four in the morning to, to watch, you know, European soccer or anything on... Um, some random network that you could somehow potentially get. So I just grew up loving sports. I came from a big sports family. And I would say probably by the time I was in, probably not even until college did I really think becoming a professional athlete and potentially playing for the national team was viable. And at that point, I was like, oh, maybe this soccer thing might work out for me. But for me, it really was like, focus on what's in front of you and great. You're in soccer, be fully or you're in soccer in college. And I was fully present there. And when I would get to go and have an opportunity, I would do my best to try to be fully present there. And uh, I would just try to do the best that I could every step along the way. And then once that national team door opened, I was like, Holy moly. Like, (laughs) wow. Like I can exist here. I can fight here. I can compete here. And that's when it really became a reality for me.
0: I can only imagine how hard it is to earn a spot on the national team. How would you describe that that experience or that journey on earning that spot?
1: I would say, like, it is – I don't feel like you ever felt like you had a spot,
0: to be honest.
1: I mean, and it was – the only way that I can – the only thing I can compare it to is, like, imagine that you have a job and it's a job that you love, and it's awesome, and it's great, and you want to stay there for a really long time, and every single day you feel like you might get fired (laughs) because every single day somebody else, you know somebody else is coming up behind you. And we used to have this joke, and you talked about Tiffany. We had this joke that the best time to be on the national team and the most exciting time was like, during an Olympics or during a world cup. And not because you got to play in the Olympics or world cup was because you knew for three weeks, you weren't going to get fired. (laughs) Like you were on the team, but the second that was over, you had to go back to proving yourself and you had to go back to trying to like compete and, and, and fight your way onto that roster. And so I would say the reality is that it was stressful a lot because I was constantly thinking, did I get enough sleep? Did I eat the right thing? Have I been training this? Have I been studying this? Did I lift weights? Did I not lift enough weights? Where am I at? And so you really had to learn how to channel that stress and that energy and that pressure. And I think a lot of people who were good enough to be on the national team maybe couldn't figure that out in the right way. And so that's why they didn't stay long or they had a couple of you know tryouts or a couple of you know a shorter stint on on the national team pool. But it was it's it was stressful. And I don't want to like like kid around with that, because I think so many people see, oh, my gosh, you get to travel here and you go to the Olympics and all of this, like the cool, sexy stuff. And you don't see the grind and how hard it is 95 percent of the time to then get like the joy and and those high peak moments that people see, you know, from afar.
0: You know, Tiffany, she she talked about that as well on the podcast last year, and she talked a little bit about the stress, like, yeah, I'm on the team, but someone is trying to take my position, and, and you're yeah. in constant, not necessarily fear, but it's pressure of doing your job every day just so you don't lose your spot.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think we used to say this a lot, too, like, pressure is a privilege, and so you w- that was kind of a way to channel that pressure into, like, look, you're lucky that you get this pressure because people would kill to be in this spot and pressure is a privilege. And now what do you do with that? And how do you make it and channel it into
0: a positive, a positive thing? Totally. Absolutely. Now, when you earned the spot, was that a a monumental moment for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge, right? I mean, it's, it's the pinnacle, but I also try, I think again, like, Maybe this was just kind of who I was, but I, I I never wanted to get too high and I never wanted to get too low. So it was awesome. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. And then it's like, okay, back to work. <laughs> um, so I feel like, you know, I mean, I think that's for me, that's one of the things that I just have to work on, right, is constantly not moving the goalposts and constantly um, trying to get better. And you know what? I got to enjoy the journey a little bit. And yeah. and so I think that that's something that I always have to work on and probably will for the rest of my life. Uh, but for sure. I mean, I remember like getting the call, my parents and saying, yeah, I made the roster. Like I'm going to the Olympics and they lose their mind. And <laughs> we're screaming on the phone. Cause this is before FaceTime, right? Like right, This right. is probably like before cell phones really even um, <laughs> we're super popular. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of moments that are awesome. I feel like I wish I had, almost enjoyed them more than I did. But looking back on it, I mean, of course, there's just a lot of pride and a lot of joy and a lot of really, really fond memories about what I was able to accomplish.
0: How would you describe your experience in 2000 when you're competing in the Olympics, you guys won the silver. Obviously, I know that you wanted the gold, but can yeah. you share with me a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was new on the national team then. So in 1999, you know, Rose Bowl, Brandy Chastain ripped off of her shirt, U.S. wins the World Cup. Huge moment um, right. in women's sports, not just women's soccer, right, but huge moment in women's sports. And I came onto the team right after that. So I made the roster in 2000. I was the only person in still in college, and I was not on the 99 roster. So it was kind of the newbie trying to fit in. And at that moment, I was just kind of trying to survive put my head down, do the work, learn, listen, and, and and figure out how to kind of where I could add in being, you know, kind of low, low one on the totem pole at that point. But getting to go to the Olympics, I mean, it's just, it's a dream come true. Having said that, we were there to do a job. And I have to say, when you are competing in the Olympics, especially soccer that runs the length of the entire tournament, like runs the length of the entire Olympics. So it's not like, you know, you just have one event and then you can party for the rest of the the Olympics. (laughs) But when you're having to be there for, you know, two and a half weeks competing, enjoying the Olympics and trying to win a gold medal, they're kind of mutually exclusive. (laughs) Like you're there to do your job and you try to treat it like your job. Um, Now, once we won the silver and, you know, you, you could kind of celebrate and enjoy, that was awesome. But having said that, like winning silver especially coming off of 99 especially the game that we had we played so well we lost in overtime is devastating and that moment and like to stand on a medal stand and like as crazy as it sounds like to be really bummed i mean we won a silver and i'm pissed right now i'm bummed like (laughs) like it's it's kind of weird i have much more appreciation for it but um, one thing I will always be grateful for, and I I really credit our captains and Carla Overbeck and Julie Saudi and Joy Fawcett, some of our, you know, our real strong leaders um, uh, at the time was like, I learned in that moment what it means to lose and still be grateful and to lose with grace and to understand that you get up there and you look at the media and you give credit to your opponent. And even if you're not feeling great, even if you feel like you should have won, I will always be grateful that I learned that lesson from them in that moment.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I can only imagine too, you know, like you said, you're there for two, two and a half weeks. It's not like you go in for a couple games. You have to like lock in your mindset for half a month. <laughs> and yeah. and I, can, yeah. I, can, I can only imagine that's, that's pretty difficult to do. Now, your professional career, which I think is really cool that you were selected first overall in in the 2002 draft for the Carolina Courage. What was that experience like?
1: That was crazy. I mean, and I just, again, I think because, I mean, maybe it's different for young girls now because there are more opportunities for women in sports, but, like, I I never thought I got to be a professional athlete. Like, that's what boys got to do. That's what you saw, like, NFL players or NBA players like that wasn't something that I got to do because I was a girl, and so that was that was the reality for me growing up in the '80s and the '90s. Like that's there just weren't those doors that were opened yet, and so when I got to do that, and it's like, wait, there's a draft, and like I, I get to be in a draft now. Believe me, like I was not making million dollars. I wasn't even making like tens of thousands of dollars. Like I wasn't getting paid like a professional athlete, (laughs) but that it was, you know, that I got to participate and kind of feel what it feels like to experience that. It was just, you know, I felt big time for a day and I felt like, Oh, you know, soccer is growing and women's opportunities are moving forward. And the fact that I feel like I get to play a little part in that is, it's a huge honor.
0: Absolutely. And you bring up a good point too, because I mean, I remember this, I was never really connected to the sport. Um, a lot more connected to it now, but growing up, it would, I felt like the era that you played in really put not only women's soccer on the map, but just soccer period. It, it, it came alive. And for me, at least it was exciting. And I, it was never exciting for me when I was young, young and, and it just, as I'm hearing you and I'm reflecting on that experience, like how awesome, like, yes, this is awesome that you got you're selected number one in a draft, but you are a part of an era that like really put women's soccer on the map. Like how cool is that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and I think about that a lot. I mean, I think about, you know, watching the women's teams now and watching professional women's soccer now and just how it continues to grow and evolve. And not even just in this country, like I look at, you know, like what's going on with the um, women's national team in Afghanistan and them fighting for their rights and just for the chance to get to play. And like, there's a common thread here and it existed long before I came along and I stand on the shoulders of people who came before me. And I think it will exist long after we're all gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, it's important. And I think that, you know, Whenever I take the moments to stop and think about that, which isn't maybe that often, I should probably do it more, but, you know, we have so far to go, but we have come a long way. And I look at some of the pioneers in our sport and I think, wow, I get to call them teammates. Like I get, they're my friends and they are like some of the strongest women and most determined competitive women that I have ever met uh, in my life. And I think that it's just, it's really cool that I had the opportunity to cross paths with them. and. And to learn from them and to say, wow, I got to play with some of the pioneers in our sport. And it's really humbling. It really is.
0: For sure. Absolutely. You know, there's one topic that I I think it's really important to talk about because every athlete, you know, has an expiration date as far as their career. We're all going to end playing sports sometime in our lives. And so when we talk about transitioning out of sport, when you transitioned out of your soccer career how was that experience and and were there any lessons that you learned along the way
1: oh my god it was horrible it was awful <laughs> it was awful <laughs> i've
0: been there and i don't think
1: we <laughs> we don't talk, yeah i mean i don't think we talk about it this, that much um as much as we should um it's you know we, we kind of suffer in silence and we think nobody else is going through this and it's certainly not something that we want to talk about while we're still playing because god forbid like i i can't i'm just trying to focus on you know, being the best I can be. Don't talk to me about this is going to be. Over. So I don't think it's something that we addressed and, um, kind of as, as I alluded to before, I mean, I had a knee injury that eventually stopped me from playing and there weren't a lot of opportunities for women's soccer players when my career ended because the professional league I had got drafted to, it had folded. So if you weren't on the national team, you, you didn't have anywhere to play. And so for me, I mean, it was a little bit bad timing and just, you know, the way that life works out. But my career just kind of faded to black. Like it just was, you just just didn't get invited into camp anymore. And that was it. And it was no fanfare, no this, no that. It was just kind of done. No goodbye, no nothing, just okay. So I didn't really have closure on that. And I think quite frankly, that I didn't have the tools at the time to be able to make that transition because I was grieving. I was probably a little bit depressed and I just kept thinking like, oh, if I just apply the tools that I used in soccer, like, suck it up, work harder, be mentally tough, right. figure it out, then that would, then I would get through it. But like, you don't get to do that with your feelings. <laughs> you don't get to do that with your emotions. Right. And, um, and so I needed new tools in my toolbox that I didn't have yet. And I didn't know where to find them. And I didn't know how to ask for help and I didn't know where to go. And so I just kept like hammering away using these tools that were completely useless for that context in that situation. Um, and so I think that like my transition and my kind of like grief at not getting to play, a, uh, to play soccer anymore lasted longer than I should have because I didn't go ask for help like I should have. And, I think that I remember for a long time being like, I would hear these um, speeches like around graduations of saying like, go find something you're passionate about and you'll never work a day in your life and follow your passion. And I was like, okay, great. But like, I'm passionate about soccer and I don't get to do that anymore. And this isn't fair. And (laughs) I would love to be passionate about something, but like, can somebody kindly please tell me how I'm supposed to figure out what else I'm passionate about because everything just felt gray Mm -hmm. compared to like the vibrant life that I had as an athlete. And I think as an athlete too, like everything is very binary in my world. Like it was you win or you lose, you start or you don't, they boo or they cheer. Like it was very black and white. (laughs) Right. And then you get into the quote unquote real world. I'm doing air quotes right now. And all of a sudden it was like, you didn't have a coach telling you what to do. You had to decide, you had to choose, you had to figure it out. And it just like, I had this whole uncharted territory. And for me, I was figuring that out at like 26, 27, 28. I had never had to go on an interview. I had never had to write a resume, like all of these things that maybe you learned when you were, you know, in college, like I didn't have to do those things. And so now I kind of put on the stress of, oh my gosh, and the judgment on myself of, great, like I don't know how to do any of these things, and I'm like almost 30 years old, and I'm competing against 20 years old who like, had all of these internships, and I can't find a job, and I can't get an interview, and what the hell am I supposed to do? And I remember having this conversation with my, my boyfriend, and he was like, Danielle, he goes, you just choose. You just, you just choose something, and then you pay attention, and if you like it, you keep doing it. And if you don't, you walk through another door and you choose something else. He's like, it's not rocket science. You're overthinking this. Just, just choose something. Just get off your butt and choose something, and then move forward. And so that's kind of how I think I finally got out of my funk. Like I would love to say it was like some huge aha moment, but I don't think it was. I think it was just little steps of, okay, I'm going to get out of bed today, take a shower and like make five phone calls and try to connect with people or work on my resume. And it was just those baby steps. And then that's when all of the tools that I learned playing soccer, like all of the hard work, figure out a plan, goal setting, like that's when all of those tools could come back into play.
0: Yeah, if That makes sense. A hundred percent. And thank you for sharing. Cause it's yeah, like, like you said, it's not talked about enough and you know, and, and again, not to go into my story, but it, when I left football and it was a career-ending injury, I I medicated for a long time and it was I think it took me about 17 years, almost two decades, to kind of to kind of find my identity again as an athlete and and feel good talking about my my athletic stories and, you know, my accomplishments and breaking records. Like there was years and years where I just I couldn't associate as an athlete. I didn't even want to talk about about that experience or experiences cuz I I couldn't I couldn't relate anymore but I also didn't want to cuz I was kind of fearful and scared like for for many reasons but it's you know again it's I think it's huge that all of us can talk about letting go of our sport but what's cool about you yeah. is that you're still connected to sport and I want to talk about that cuz it seems like you're doing a few things right now you know you said your passion is soccer and you still have a chance to actually live that passion so you know, you're a soccer analyst for the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, Fox Sports, NBC Sports, the Pac-12 Network. Like, how awesome is that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I love people um, and I love telling stories. And I feel like, you know, it's the perfect blend of getting to tell people stories and still stay involved in the game. And so being on the sideline, being on the booth, um, you know, being in media is an awesome outlet for me. And, again, like, you know, kind of to tap back into, like, find something you're passionate about and you don't feel like work. Like, every time I get to go call a game, I'm like, I'm getting paid to do this? Like, what? (laughs) This is crazy. And, like, I have the best seat in the house? Are you kidding me? This is amazing. Um, So, I I mean, it's hard work, you know, but it's awesome and it doesn't feel – like work to me, and you know I am constantly indebted to soccer in that it gave me so much, and so I'm constantly trying to find ways now that i'm you know secure in who I am and confident about being around the game, kind of as you alluded to, like how can I give back? How can I be a part? How can I can contribute? How can I inspire kids to to want to be involved in this game, and there's more to being involved in soccer than just being a player or just being a coach. There's so many things you can do um to have this sport in your life and contribute to it. And I feel like I've, I found that, um, I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, television is a fickle business and, yeah. you know, especially being a woman and a minority woman on television, there are not a lot of opportunities. Next person could come along and you could be out. Um, and so I, I understand that, but I'm also like, well, pff, I, I mean, I've gotten cut from an Olympic roster. I've gotten <laughs> kicked off the national team like this, this I can handle? Like, right. I am prepared for this now. And I just do the best that I can. I think I enjoy the journey more than I used to. And I'm just really, I'm really grateful and just trying to get better every day.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, when you reflect on your career, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Um, I've learned that we all have
1: really special talents and special things that make us unique and that we can bring to the game, um, or bring to life. And we have to really focus on those strengths. In addition to making ourselves better, you know, in the areas where we're maybe not so good, um, whatever makes you special, like kick butt at that, do that, focus on that. Um, because that's what makes you different. And that's what makes you unique. And I have learned what that is about me. Um, I learned that on the field, but now long after soccer, I know, who I am and what I want to do and to be really proud of that um, is I think what I'm most, what I'm most proud of.
0: Awesome. That's great. And how can my listeners follow you on social media?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not a huge social media person, but I do tweet from time to time. Um, <laughs> and my handle is Danielle V Slayton V as in Victoria. Cause that's my middle name.
0: All right this uh, this was great um thank you so much for just sharing your mindset and your olympic stories and just your whole journey um this is very very cool and and i know that my listeners are going to love it too so thank you so much for being on my show
1: thank you i appreciate you having me i really do
0: you bet